All right, in our third or final segment today, we're going to address the issue of celestial mechanics. Actually, that's a wild exaggeration. What we're going to do is look out into space and talk about how things go around other things. Let's start with the fact that if you go out a couple nights from now and look up in the sky above Orion, follow the belt of Orion upward, locate the famous Seven Sisters, or Pleiades, you should be able to see near it Comet Lovejoy, which is currently making a name for itself by brightening up to something like the fourth magnitude. Which it means you probably do need to get away from city lights a bit. But uh, what else you got to do tonight or the next couple nights? And I want to note by coincidence that I was up looking at the night sky a week or two ago and had to marvel at that great asterism. Better known to you as a star pattern, not exactly a constellation. It's usually like a part of a constellation, but something that sticks out, like the Pleiades we just mentioned, which looks something like a little miniature dipper, which happens to be right next to the other part of Taurus the Bull, the Hyades, another star cluster, which is in a V-shape. But I'm hard-pressed to think of anything quite as striking in the sky as the three bright stars that make up the belt of Orion. And uh, the belt of Orion also impresses Bob Berman, former Radio Parallax uh, guest. He wrote about this in Astronomy Magazine last April. I think it's worth a quote or two. Asked Mr. Berman, what's your first star memory? You probably observed the three luminaries of Orion's belt before anything else. Most kids notice it even before the Big Dipper or in places down under the Southern Cross. There's nothing else like it in the heavens. Moreover, Unlike other eye-catching constellations, Orion lies on the celestial equator. In fact, the celestial equator runs right through the belt. Thus, that asterism of Orion's belt alone stands visible throughout the entire world. Now, if you want to impress people by your knowledge of the stars, you might want to rattle off the names of the three stars making up the belt. The middle one is called Alnilam and appears almost perfectly centered between Mintaka on the right and al on the left. They're all three pretty well matched in brightness, and pretty much all ancient societies looked up and called it a belt or a girdle, which makes it, I suppose, the sky's only article of clothing. Berman does point out that no one's ever looked up and said, oh, there's Andromeda's underpants, or Perseus's sneakers. Anyway, we encourage you to go out and use this belt of Orion to help you locate this comet. It should be of some value if you're not able to look right up and spot Aldebaran, the red star making up the eye of the bull in Taurus, which is where the comet's going to be. We talked a couple weeks ago about passing the winter solstice and also the fact that the Earth is closest to the sun in the very beginning of January. But I stumbled on another Bob Berman column talking about the darkness of the North Pole that I thought was worth a sentence or two. Berman pointed out that it's a myth that the winter solstice brings a kind of permanent night to everyone north of the Arctic Circle, latitude of 66 and a half degrees. Now, this would be the case if it were not for our atmosphere. Turns out that because of the bending of the sun's rays on the solstice, the sun is actually always visible anywhere south of latitude 67. Berman does posit the question of how far north you'd have to go from the Arctic Circle to find uh, midnight at noon on the solstice. He says, well, further north than you'd imagine. Even 500 miles beyond the Arctic Circle, the atmospheric refraction keeps the day bright enough to read. And even at 800 miles north of the circle, you'd experience a nautical twilight with the distant horizon still visible to your eyes. To experience true 
noonday night on the winter solstice, you have to place yourself within 400 miles of the exact North Pole. And by the way, Radio Parallax does not necessarily recommend that you do this, especially if you're going there for the stargazing, because on the North Pole, all you ever see is half the stars in the heavens. Everything below the equator just never shows up. All right, and speaking of astronomical factoids, and I guess we are, let's go out to the planet Saturn, because on Planetary Radio a few weeks back, among fun facts, former Radio Parallax guest Bruce Betts informed the host of the program, Matt Kaplan, also one of our former guests, and future guests in both cases, that if you scaled out the rings of Saturn to where the width of those rings was that of a CD, well, he asked, what do you think the, the width of the ring system would be. It turns out that if the rings of Saturn were as thick as a CD, the rings would extend across 21 miles of space. Now, apparently later this year, the Cassini spacecraft is going to take a closer look again at the moon's Titan and Enceladus. Enceladus is the one that's spewing out these giant geysers from near its south pole, and Titan has got methane or ethane lakes, we're not quite sure, all over its surface. And we can expect that Cassini, now in its 10th year of doing science, is going to, again, enlighten us with some real surprises. And uh, anyway, let's go back back to Bob Berman. I have in my left hand a column he did not for Astronomy Magazine, but for Discover Magazine back in February of the year 2000. Something odd took place in terms of the calendar in February of 2000, something that had not taken place for 400 years. February of that year had 29 days. Whereas in the previous three century years ending in 00, February only had 28 days. This once a century deletion of the extra day in February, at least three times out of four in a 400 year period, kept our calendar accurate. In fact, this Gregorian calendar, which goes back to Pope Gregory the 13th in the year 1582, keeps our calendar accurate to within one day every 3,300 years. And if you're worried about the correction that'll take place thousands of years in the future, well, it turns out that years divisible by 4,000 are also not leap years. Why all the fuss? Well, it turned out that Julius Caesar, when he was horsing around in Egypt in pursuit of Cleopatra, discovered that the Egyptians had a way better calendar than the Romans did. It figured that a year here on planet Earth was 365 days and a quarter, or six hours, which is pretty close. But unfortunately for posterity, the real number is 365 days, five hours, 48 minutes, and 46 seconds. Thus, each year runs a little short by about 11 minutes. It doesn't sound like much, but it turned out that every 128 years, the calendar was a day off. And after doing that for a millennium and change, things got more like 10 or 11 days off. Which explains why it was that our first president, George Washington, for the first 20 years of his life, celebrated his birthday as February 11th. We now have readjusted it to February 22nd. The way this all played out was by the time we got up to the 1500s, The spring equinox, which was previously at March 21st, had moved forward to something like March 11th. 
Something needed to be done, so the Pope stepped in and said, all right, we're just going to eliminate 10 days from the year. This promptly induced riots all over Europe, where various Catholics felt they were being cheated out of 10 days of life. And the political timing of this did not work out so well for a unified Europe. The Protestant Reformation was well underway, and the Protestant countries weren't about to listen to the Pope. So they decided to keep the Julian calendar. It's said that England's Queen Elizabeth was in favor of the change, but got overruled. But having one calendar in Protestant countries and one calendar in Catholic countries was causing lots of trouble, as you might imagine. So eventually the British got on board, and so did her American colonies. What the Pope changed in 1582 took until 1752 to reach the shores of North America. And it took a lot longer for this to reach Russia, which was uh, an Eastern Orthodox country and not subject to the whims of the Pope, or Protestant leaders for that matter. Thus, as late as 1917, it turns out that the October Revolution that took place in Russia, in fact, took place in November. See if you can win a bar bet on that one. Now, the world's Christian nations pretty much seem to have got all in sync by the 20th century, but China only adopted the Gregorian scheme in 1949. And, of course, non-Christian countries and faiths felt even less urgency to adopt this system, and the Islamic religious calendar is still based on the phases of the moon and moves to the seasons. The new year drifts from winter to summer over the course of a 17-year lunar cycle. Of course, if you're a devout Muslim and you're not supposed to eat during the day, during the period of Ramadan, well, that makes it a little bit tougher when that comes during the summer months. And you've got to go without food for like, what, 16 hours? Ouch. Now, in an article about all of this by Chris Turney, a new scientist back in December of 2006, they noted that today we no longer define a year by the Earth's orbit around the sun at all. We now use atomic clocks. A year, if you're keeping score depends on the atomic vibrations of a vaporized atom of cesium-133 isotope. All you got to do is count the oscillations. In fact, you're going to have to count off 290 quadrillion, 91 trillion, 200 billion, and 500 million oscillations. I know, Mr. Miller, I can't explain why it rounds off so nicely either, but I guess it does. Now, what's funny about that is that in some ways we've almost become too precise. The Earth's orbital period does not keep that level of precision. So rather perversely, we have to make up for natural variability in our orbit by continually adjusting our atomic calendars by adding leap seconds, which is something, which is something we do almost every year. We're planning to do it here in 2015. And in one final trivia item, we have a letter to the editor. In this case, the old Science Digest magazine. I've been holding on to this one since 1982. J. Allen Hynek, formerly Associate Director of the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory and UFO buff. Well, maybe that's unfair, but he does appear in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In response to the question, what is a Julian day? Is it a day on the Julian calendar? Professor Hynek responded with the following. No, they're quite different. The Julian calendar was introduced into the Roman Empire by Julius Caesar in 46 B.C., on the advice of the Greek astronomer Sosthenes. And of course, Julius took the credit. In the same year that Pope Gregory XIII introduced our Gregorian calendar, in 1582, French scholar Joseph Scaliger devised the Julian day system and named it after his father, who evidently was named Julius. By the way, Groucho Marx's real name was Julius. Julius.
No connection to this story. But under Scaliger's system, days were numbered back starting since January 1st, 4713 BC. Thus, September 1st, 1982 was Julian Day 2,445,214. Now, astronomers find this, uh, this notation very handy for predicting eclipses and working out the math on a lot of these things. They don't have to remember 30 days hath September, etc., etc. In answer to the question, why did they begin on January 1st, 4713 BC? Well, it turns out that that date is in phase with three different ancient calendar cycles. And it's far enough back that no one has to deal with Julian days going backwards like we do using BC. And now you know the rest of the story. All right, as much as we love talking about science stuff and space stuff, we have to close with one item a little closer to home. From, I guess, the goofball file. I think we can't do better in citing this piece than to just use the headline, which comes from L.A. now. The headline is, Alligator found in San Fernando Valley home. Had lived there 37 years. To quote from a piece by a Matt Hamilton, An eight-foot alligator has been living in the backyard of a San Fernando Valley home for about 40 years, animal control officials said Wednesday. Officers from the Los Angeles Animal Services Department found the alligator Monday inside a wooden crate at the home on Sylvan Street in Van Nuys, said Commander Mark Salazar. The alligator was taken to the Los Angeles Zoo. Ron Gorecki, age 53, who was among those who cared for the gator named Jackson, said, we tried to give him a good home. The alligator's original owner was Gorecki's brother-in-law who passed away last year. He loved him. It was his pride and joy. Said Gorecki, the alligator was purchased at a Los Angeles pet shop 37 years ago and lived inside the home. Well, except that as he got bigger, he had to go back outside again. Said Gorecki, the alligator's presence was something of an open secret in the Van Nuys neighborhood. Noting, everybody knew Jackson. Now, when investigators arrived at the home last week, the backyard crate housing Jackson was covered in foliage and other debris, said Salazar from the animal control people. Along with the alligator, animal control officials found two cat carcasses inside the crate. Last August, officers searched the same property with the permission of those living there after someone in the neighborhood reported seeing reptiles. That search came up empty, and Salazar said officials believe the alligator was relocated to thwart investigators, adding that last week's search was a surprise, and at first the home occupants refused to grant access. But with a search warrant secured and the LAPD standing by, animal control officers canvassed the home. And by the way, a cat and tortoise were also found living on the property. Officials suspected that the two feline carcasses may be of cats owned by nearby residents. Salazar asked neighbors to report if they had lost any small pets during the past four decades. (laughs) Staff from the Los Angeles Zoo reportedly helped to safely transport the alligator to the zoo, where the reptile is currently undergoing a health examination. And no, Radio Parallax is completely unaware of whether the alligator got all of his shots. The alligator was not sedated during transit and its current health status, according to Salazar, was unknown. And what is surely a terrific case of your tax dollars at work, Animal Services is continuing a criminal investigation 
and anticipates forwarding a case to the city attorney for prosecution. Said Salazar, keeping wildlife without a permit is illegal in Los Angeles. And yes, the home's occupants lacked a permit for the alligator. Yeah, you just can't let this kind of thing go unchallenged by the legal authorities, wouldn't you say? That about does it for the program, which was produced by Edward McMillan, who solemnly promises you that if he ever keeps any wildlife, he will do his best to obtain the proper permits. Our thanks to the late, great Ed Martin, who we feel quite confident would get a chuckle out of our closing this program with Jerry Reed's Amos Moses, who, we remind you, as a boy, was used by his daddy for alligator bait. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week. Yeah! Here comes Amos! Now, Amos Moses was a Cajun. He lived by himself in the swamp. He hunted alligator for a living. He'd just knock him in the head with a stone. The Louisiana law gon' get you, Amos. It ain't legal hunting alligator down in the swamp, boy. Now everybody blamed his old man for making him mean as a snake. When Amos Moses was a boy, his daddy would use him for alligator bait. Tie a rope around his waist and throw him in the swamp. Got left, called alligator, bit it. <laughs> <laughs>